Welcome to Series 8. A little bit of a longer break than planned, but I'm so happy to be back and to be shining a light on some of the most incredible and inspiring stories. And what a series we have in store for you. Today I'm welcoming the wonderful Anna Whitehouse, aka Mother Pucker, to the podcast. Journalist, radio presenter, author and campaigner, Anna is most known for her brilliant Flex Appeal campaign, which she began back in 2015 advocating for better access to flexible working hours. And it couldn't feel more of an apt time to be chatting to Anna when the whole working world is changing and businesses are having to reassess their ways of working, hopefully more flexibly. It was an honest, inspiring and hilarious chat, which I know you all love. Just a note, though, Anna covers some difficult subjects in this conversation. So do check the show notes. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I'm the founder of Not on the High Street and Holly and & Co. And I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business, doing what you love, is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everybody start theirs. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor, NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. Hi Anna, I've been a huge admirer of yours for a while now. So even though we're not actually meeting face to face, it's really lovely to finally meet you. This is the first podcast we've recorded remotely on Conversations of Inspiration. I'm here in my office um, looking out over Leafy River in West London. Uh, Where are you recording from today? Uh, We're in East London, uh, Leighton. Um, Better Leighton than never is the strap line. Um, Is that the strap line? Yeah, you know, it's where everybody who thought they could live in Hackney and Shoreditch and then just went, oh, no, we can't afford that. So we're out in Leighton. (laughs) Well, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, How are you at the moment? Because we are just coming out of eight weeks into lockdown here in the UK. You know, you always want to respond with the standard, I'm fine, because you don't really know where to start. Um, But I mean, to give you some context, I just shoved both kids in front of the TV to come and speak to you. And I just came back in and they were watching the poker channel. So um, I I don't know where we are, but I'm going to repackage that as key stage two maths and, um, (laughs) and hope that we're fine. But I think Matt and I did the maths on it. We're doing a three-hour homeschooling, eight-hour working day with 12 hours of kind of childcare wrapped around that. That's 23 hours of labour in a 24-hour day. Uh, A lot of people say, you must be so excited about heralding this new flexible working revolution. I'm like, no, no, no. Right now is the time to get a pair of pants on and get through the day. That's the benchmark. (laughs) If you've got a a gusset on, you're good. That's my strap line. (laughs) You heard it here first. Um, I would love, I'm going to get more into flexible working and it's something I'm really excited to talk to you about. Um, but I'd love just to start at the beginning with your story. Uh, like like me, you've had time in Amsterdam. You were actually born in Amsterdam. What was your early life like for you? It was 
free. I think that's the way I can describe it. I think we were a little freer. Um, you know, I, I actually grew up speaking English and Dutch and my accent, my Dutch accent was really strange. Uh, so I was always the odd one out there, but the odd one out in Holland is very celebrated. Um, and that is kind of how I felt, I think, growing up um, was that having parents from both sides of the English channel you know, was was great. We were just talking before we started recording about you know, Amsterdam and uh, both of our experiences of being young in the red light district and having a look around and wondering why everyone was wearing bikinis um, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the thing also in Holland is sex education happens much sooner. So uh, they start sex ed at four and you have a pregnant woman coming into the classroom and saying, kids, you can ask me anything. And that's quite a nice way of doing it. So you've got, so you know, nice. a kid that goes, you know, how did the baby get in there? And then you always have somebody who goes, why have you got such a big nose? <laughs> no, no, questions around gynecology and uh, and raising a child, please. Can we streamline them, please? Um, but I did move to the UK very soon. So I went to Linslade Lower School in Leighton Buzzard uh, when I was really young. So I didn't really go through the Dutch uh, education system. And you were certainly academic as you went on to study law at university. Did you always want to become a lawyer? Well, my dad was a lawyer. My auntie was a lawyer. And uh, my auntie was a family uh, barrister. And I would go and shadow her for my summer holidays. And I always ended up having to play with the kids that had been brought along to court because they couldn't find childcare. And I remember just thinking, I want to help sort people's issues out. Um, and that was a very basic line in. Um, and I then went on to do my mini pupillage at Devray Chambers on Chancery Lane. Um, but what I realised was I enjoy asking questions, not just accepting the law. And uh, that, mm. much like you, was where things shifted. I, I felt the optics weren't right. I couldn't see any women at the top there at the time. And I thought, well, how am I going to break through that? Not by joining the system, by stepping out of the system. And that must have been quite a sliding doors type of moment for you because you were young as well weren't you um you were almost looking at your life uh, in front of you which I think is quite a rare thing to do so young to almost say well this isn't a system I want to join this maybe is not going to support the life that I want to have yeah I mean I look back on it now and I absolutely made a career swerve based on the fact that I couldn't see how I could have children and I looked through loads of careers and it was like a shopping list. You know, what careers could I do flexibly around a child? I know I want to have a family. And um, that was journalism because the word freelance mm. was attached to it. So I yeah. went from wanting to be within the legal system to questioning why the legal system wasn't inclusive and why women were not fighting their way to the top. I mean, I, I say that and sound like I'm on my soapbox, but then I went to work for Practical Caravan magazine. So it wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't sort of like I went on this big sort of feminist rant and then, um, you know, ended up working at uh, The Guardian, The Telegraph or, you know, The Times. It was Practical Caravan magazine as the tow bar expert. So um, my parents were somewhat concerned with the sliding doors moment they were like has the patio door got stuck are you sure I was like no trust me trust me 
I'll tell you oh all you need to know. Gosh, that is so funny. But it is really rare in a way that you had that foresight. And it's interesting, as you said, that journalism had that that word. I mean, it was one of the only professions, wasn't it, that almost had that word attached? Yeah. Um, and I think I'm not, I don't think it's uh, any element of um, superior foresight or intelligence. It's nothing like that. It was just, I knew I wanted to be a mother. And I think it was um, what a lot of us probably feel, but quash, because you must not utter those words or you must remove your engagement ring in in, in interviews in case there's a whiff of procreation around you. And I just wasn't willing to sacrifice uh, wanting that and being vocal about that. And I felt that the law wasn't a place for me to be able to state that motherhood was at the top of my pyramid. Um, And I think a lot of people know that. I think they just don't admit it. Um, I felt, and I continued feeling this as I was going to interviews, even within journalism, that um, if I uttered that I was married, if I made it clear that I wanted to have children or had children, that would still uh, mean I perhaps didn't get the job. Or if a guy came in who wasn't going to bring all of that seeming baggage to the table, uh, he would get the job. And um, so it kind of started by leaving the bar and continued (laughs) via practical caravan, practical motorhome. Uh, Horticulture week was another one. I mean, we've all got to earn our stripes, Holly, don't we? You don't just go straight in. (laughs) Um, We have all done what it's taken. Tell me about that shift then from that legal world into your prestige collection of titles that you started to work with? It wasn't pompous in any way. I was like, words on a page printed and there's a reader. Good. And I remember um, writing the lead story for Horticulture Week and uh, it went as simply as this, as I'd ring up Frank down in Bognor Regis and he had a farm and I'd be like, Frank, um, Sid up the road thinks your slug pellets are shit. What do you think? And he's like, he's a bastard. He's an absolute bastard. And um, that would be my lead story. And I realised I loved asking people questions and ironically the further I got up the journalism ladder got to women's mags grazia you know moved on to sort of time out uh, did a lot of work for the independent for the telegraph the purity of asking people without publicists or PR folk around them to protect them to actually ask questions to get human responses I laugh about the B2B mags, but actually that was where I felt most connected to the people I was interviewing Um, because I then went on to interview people like Victoria Beckham, but, you know, she wasn't answering as Victoria Beckham. She was answering as this perfectly polished publicity machine. I love her. Her business now is second to none, but um, I want to talk to Frank in Bognor Regis over Victoria Beckham. It's so interesting hearing you say this because almost in a way, I feel like, journalism and what you're describing you do want you want to talk to the raw source you want to gain that insight it's that incredible 
ability that journalists have. I was talking to Joe Fairley um, on this podcast. He's also a journalist who founded Green and Black's Chocolate. And she had such a different view on the world, very much brought in from everything she has absorbed in her time as a journalist. You know, she could see the future differently. And I can imagine that's what we're going to talk about, how you see the future. And I'm fascinated to get stuck into that. But I wanted to talk to you about when you met your husband, Matt, as that is quite an incredible story. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, Matt was working on Human Resources magazine uh, while I was on um, Horticulture Week. And I think he'd been nominated for HR Recruitment Writer (laughs) of the Year. And it had gone around the uh, company's uh, intranet service. And um, that was it, really. I thought, get me some of that. Um, (laughs) I uh, I met him then in a pub on a work do and um, yeah, we started chatting and bizarrely, he got offered his dream job on a travel magazine in Dubai about a month later and he really drunkenly uh, said, do you fancy coming with me? And I really drunkenly uh, said yes, uh, but then we're both so British that we woke up the next morning really hung over, just gently booked our flights, the other one not wanting to go. <laughs> And we just went, yeah, of course, no, woman of my word, woman of my word, um, let's do this. Of course, we thought it was a great idea at four in the morning, um, and I wow. went with him. So it was whirlwind, and I don't think it's a case of if you know, you know. We didn't know; we were just really, really hungover. Um, but it's been a hangover. And polite, <laughs> and polite. Um, it's been a hangover that's lasted a good thirteen years now, with two children. Uh, a flatulent beagle and a house so you know whoever says happily ever afters don't happen they're wrong just get drunk (laughs) and you also found out um am I right in saying this that you were um pregnant a month and a half in is that right yes so yeah it was um an intense time and I spoke about this in our book our first book and it was difficult and I wasn't sure whether to bring it up, but uh, we got pregnant very, very soon. And I went to have an abortion and uh, I was at work and I was finding it all very difficult, but we were moving to another country and I didn't know whether I was making the right decision or not. I was young and um, I felt like it was the right decision in the context of our lives at that point. It then got to, I think the day before I was meant to go to the clinic and I started to bleed and uh, realized I was actually miscarrying. And I think within a five minute period, I went from realizing uh, this wasn't my choice to make. Um, And this is absolutely a pro-choice. It is not to shame anyone. It is more than anything to open up a conversation around choice. Yes. But in that moment, I think uh, I realized how much I wanted that life. And uh, that shifted, I think, Matt and I considerably. And everybody says you get married on your wedding day. You know, there's a big significant moment. For us, it was on the maternity ward at Hammersmith Hospital, uh, sitting on a bed together again at four in the morning, um, him eating a packet of frazzles. holding me, 
crying, uh, realizing that that was probably the point where we married each other, not uh, on our wedding day with all the frippery and friends. Um, and I think from that point onwards, we were always okay because we'd built we'd built a foundation. Uh, we'd got past that oxytocin fueled first six months of, of course, I'm going to love you. I mean, I've got time on my hands and we're having sex all the time. Uh, we had got past that and we'd relocated to uh, another country and I still really enjoyed his chat and I saw what he was like in sickness and in health, I suppose, uh, within the first month. So some might say we ripped the plaster off <laughs> quite quickly. Gosh. Gosh, that's so moving, that story. It really is. And I know exactly um, what you mean. Thank you for sharing that because I, I think it's aren't, there's so many no-go areas, aren't there? There's so many things that we're not able to speak about as women. And it's it's and it's the bravery of of making sure that we do speak about these things. And and it's um it's imperative because I think we I feel that women are so caught up, aren't they? They feel Every woman almost has a bit of a grenade inside of them of of shame or um, these experiences that they had when they were young. And, and it's, it's very few times that we actually hear it. Want to win a one-to-one 90-minute mentoring session with me? Well, thanks to NatWest, you can. All you need to do is sign up to the NatWest Business Builder using our code to be in with a chance. The Business Builder is an entirely free e-learning site packed full of information and advice, covering everything from well-being to finance. Head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker to find out all the details. Now, as you know, each week we run a competition with NatWest who, in a world first, give away their ad break space to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your brilliant businesses to hundreds and thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest independent ad break winner. Hello, I'm Rebecca, or sometimes I'm known as Mrs Biscuit because I'm the founder of Honeywell Biscuit Co. We sell a range of beautifully hand-iced biscuits, artisan baking kits and monthly baking subscription boxes. The business was started nearly eight years ago after a conversation with my sister over a cup of coffee and, of course, a biscuit. Sustainability is at the heart of everything we do. Our ingredients are locally sourced wherever possible, with the flour being milled just down the road. A percentage of every sale is donated to our charity partner, Farm Africa. On our website, you can choose from a range of beautifully designed biscuit gifts. You can browse the whole selection or try out one of the free recipes on our baking journal at www.honeywellbiscuit.co. You'll also find almost daily inspiration and baking tips over on our Facebook and Instagram channels, both at Honeywell Biscuit Co. We'll see you there. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, we've created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. (music) 
you now work closely with Matt, also known as um, Papa Pucker, and you've just released a book together called Where's My Happy Ending. Did you know that you could work together? What was that journey like? Because I know, bless my Frank, um, we tried to work together. It didn't work out so well. Um, so we we just stopped that very, very quickly. And I know a lot of people listening do work with the other halves. What 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 has this journey been like? Well, um, I mean, I still want to flick him really hard on the forehead most times. That's the that's the closest I've got to harnessing the frustration of living and working with someone. And I sort of go into the bathroom and there's the beard shavings everywhere. And it's just like, I don't know how hard it is just to sort that out. And so um, it's been a journey. Um, and I think we kind of got to the point where we were hearing the same stories from friends uh, saying that they they didn't want to divorce their partners or they weren't necessarily like, oh, God, this is awful. But they wanted more happiness. Like they felt that they were just existing, not enjoying. And um, that ranged from singles, couples, thruples. We interviewed uh, sex workers, gigolos. Uh, a lollipop lady who's the UK's longest serving lollipop lady and her happiness is having a bowl of bran flakes in the morning and uh, reading a true crime thriller. You know, we weren't talking about, you know, 2.4 kids and a white picket fence happiness because that's the happiness I think needed to be broken down. Um, So really, we went into it willing to put on the table uh, the fact that I'd miscarried and the ricocheting from it's not your choice to you thought it was your choice was quite a big thing to navigate together Um, right the way through to the passive aggression of him swearing at inanimate objects in our house just going fuck's sake and I'm like why are you saying for fuck's sake why are you bringing that to the house like contain it somehow and he said he has this scream that's lingering in his esophagus but never comes out so he's constantly on that edge but um what we found was actually recalibrating this elusive Disney happily ever after made us so much happier. The person that brought happiness to Matt and I wasn't a therapist, wasn't a sex worker, wasn't anyone other than uh, the UK's longest serving fisherman, uh, Derek West. He's 97. He's been married for 70 years. And he just said, stop putting pressure on your partner to save you. He said, when I'm out at sea, I am not looking to my wife to haul me back on board. I'm looking at the young lads out on their boats going, mate, can you help me get back on the boat? I'm looking to my neighbor, Norman, who will help me get into my house if I've locked myself out. I'm looking to Sue at the corner shop who will often let me pay for my milk the next day. He said, I'm looking to community. And he said, what we have stopped doing, and bear in mind, this was pre-lockdown. What we have stopped doing is reaching out to our community. We're looking down at our phones, expecting the person to our right to cheer us up to be our, I think the terminology, our one and only, together forever. And he said, that pressure is going to break even the strongest of unions. And he said, that's why I've been married for 70 years. And it was such a simple thing. And it's not to say this is going to save your marriage, but uh, it definitely gave me a perspective to stop expecting your partner to be your one and only, because that will break them. I mean, 
gosh, such, I, I, I don't really know what to say because I'm trying to process this like anyone that is listening is trying to process what you've said because it's so very true. And I think that we have now built a narrative of, well, I was talking about it this week, uh, responsibility to yourself and responsibility that only you are responsible for how you behave, how you conduct yourself, how you think, how you rely on others. And it goes hand in hand in a way, because so much of what we now look at are screams. We look at, you know, gosh, look at their lives. Isn't this unbelievable, their lives? Look at their business. God, look yeah. at that. Um, we we are in this comparison world. Um, and then we turn to our nearest and dearest and say, well, how come you're not doing this for me? And ultimately, what I always talk about is the, you know, the power within you. You are responsible for your own actions. And I think uh, something Alan de Boton, uh, the relationships expert, said, you are responsible for yourself. And so he said, Holly, if you're having an argument with your husband, instead of just thinking, what does Holly need now? Ask, what does love need now and actually it's a very simple shift but and it sounds like something that could be stitched onto a cushion or uh you know on an instagram inspirational quote but i do think if you are working with your partner um and you want to work successfully with your partner you have to stop thinking what do i need and often what does love need now is for both of you to stop being a bit of a dick <laughs> but we're so stubborn and we're so you know we're so used to kind of like being striven to win to do this to succeed to hit the targets etc that sometimes that just doesn't apply to your relationship and you need to step it back and start crocheting onto a cushion what does love need now it's helped us I have to say that's a whole new product line and not on the high street I can <laughs> see just coming coming your way actually um Please say if you don't want to touch on this part, but you've had some very tough moments from what you've described as the beginning of your relationship with Matt. You've written about it so beautifully and openly. Are you happy to talk because you've suffered five miscarriages in your life, which I I actually just can't really get my head around or understand. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, we, we've, uh, we've, we've spoken very openly about it, but mainly because we felt the female experience of miscarriage was um, well documented, but the male experience of miscarriage wasn't. It was almost like they were uh, irrelevant in the conversation, in the pain, in the hurt. Um, and I think, not to be brutal, but to bring it back to business, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk very openly about miscarriage was because I suffered miscarriages while working and felt, coming back to the shame you were talking about, I felt, gosh, if I say I've had a miscarriage or why I need to go to hospital, then my boss is going to know I'm trying. And that might mean I miss a promotion because I cannot trust a working world that doesn't see a mother as anything other than a burden. And I know that for a fact, because 54,000 women every single year lose their jobs uh, simply by getting pregnant uh, or being pushed out of the workforce for uh, not being not being able to work due to lack of flexible working. So I felt very strongly that the link between the pain and hurt and loss that Matt and I were suffering was directly linked to 
the way it was handled as well at work, the fact that we talk about bringing our whole selves to work. And actually, if I'm sitting at my desk, as many other women have, miscarrying and not telling anyone about it for fear that I will lose a promotion, there is something really inhuman about that situation. And there is something very wrong, not just with that business, but business on a more general level. So the turning point in the conversation was when I had not been able to get anything out of Matt for so long. He just didn't speak to me about it. Um, He just was there for me in a very practical way. He sort of fixed my broken heart with um, by going to B&Q and grouting the kitchen tiles. And he didn't know how else to do it. And actually, what he did was he out of nowhere wrote uh, a blog post about the male side of miscarriage. And it did detail all the practical things he was thinking of, because that was how he is how his pain manifested. It was a very male perspective on it. And it helped us heal together. And I suppose, coming back to where's my happy ending, we married each other through miscarriage, through redundancy, through postnatal depression. And our work didn't suffer because of those things. Our work improved because of our honesty around those things and stepping back when we needed to. But I think it's that level of transparency, if you feel comfortable, um, which taps into people like Robert Reitbrook, the CEO of PepsiCo, who just implemented the leaving loudly policy because he wanted to stop people feeling shame in leaving. You know, he said, clearly, you don't need to say I'm off to have my smear test, but you can just say I'm off to the doctor or, you know, I'm I'm off to pick up Archie from school or I'm off to play squash. He said, we need to stop feeling shame around being human. It is definitely linked in terms of how I want businesses to move forward in a human way. And I don't want any other woman to sit at her desk miscarrying, feel, feeling they cannot explain why or take the time off for fear of either losing a job or missing a promotion. Here, here, My God, absolutely. We talk a lot about resilience on this podcast, um, especially when it comes to business, you know, the major highs and lows. But I think what you've been through and um, your openness is this whole new level. And I'm so glad that we're talking about it today. Did it change you as a person? Yes, I think there was a point where um, maybe Matt and I shared too much. We were finding it very cathartic connecting with other people. But then is that fine line between I think a lot of businesses struggle with is the personal and the business. Um, Where is that line and how do I navigate it? And suddenly we'd become the pillars of our business. Not just that, but our trauma had become the pillars of our business without intention because we're both journalists. And I realized that I was happier asking the questions. I think that was where the shift came. We had spoken openly about all the things that we felt weren't on the table, and not just for us, but it's the working world that we want our two daughters to go into. I don't want them facing the same sense of shame around being a woman in the workplace uh, as I felt. And I think exactly what you said at the beginning, like the old trope of the ferocious businesswoman with her shoulder pads, you know, like, and her Louboutin heels in a glass walled office. It's like, 
it's not just about smashing the glass ceilings. It's about smashing all those stereotypes and mm. tropes because we're human. Mm. We bleed. We miscarry. We have trauma. And not just that, our partners alongside us are traumatized too. Um, and any employer looking at me, you know, just saying, well, we can't offer flexible working for this or no, you know, we need you in the office tomorrow or you can't have your smear test on that day. Whatever it is, you just think, where did you come from? There is a woman who had you. Yeah. Go back to the beginning and think about where the priority is. And as I said to you at the top of my triangle, whether I was a mother or not, it was always motherhood. It was always parenthood. It was always humans. And I think, you know, my point has always been put humans at the heart of your business, not just on a slogan, not just to saying you're a family first employer, not just for PR purposes, but for business benefit. Because as yes. soon as you look someone in the eye and say, are you okay? Can I help you? Can I help you essentially work harder for me is all you're asking. Um, empower your employees, recognize that we're all flawed, recognize that we will all break. I think help your team break together instead of um, splintering off what you consider to be uh, irrelevant pieces, simply because of, as I put on a post once, raising the next generation. I mean, isn't that a fairly big task. It's not it's just, fairly, yeah. it's not just, <laughs> you know, when we actually put it down on paper, it's not just, you know, chucking a few Fisher Price toys into a pen and hoping that they chew on a bit of saurine, which to be honest is um, my parenting at the moment. Just chuck it into the pen. I just literally lobbing saurine bars into the playroom uh, with Peppa Pig <laughs> on. Just mummy needs five. <laughs> So what you're referring to is before we um, started recording, you know, where I was finding myself, where I was, and I'm open about it, wearing double spanks, the tightest of dresses, high heels, um, becoming a sort of she-man, because that was what I saw potentially out there, alpha women in business. You know, that's that's when you can really sit at the table, you know, when you are the least female uh, you can be, but actually do look nice. Definitely wear makeup. You never turn up without any makeup on. And actually what then that created, which was then a female boss, almost showing that to younger women who were coming up in the business as well. But for now, you know, the opposite from seeing sort of double spanked Holly to now where I ditched the heels in 2014, have only worn trainers, the the femininity I celebrate within business, trying to help others understand that, funny enough, you can wear a hairband, wear glitter trainers, offer flexible working, care enormously about the people that work for you, and have a really good business. This is the message that just hasn't, certainly from the female point of view, I don't think as female leaders, we've done a very good job in creating the right people for others to look up to. Just humans. I get kicked back on people saying, you know, I can't believe you put up, um, I put up a picture this morning of a crocheted um, penis. And, uh, you know, I just had the hashtag impractical. Then before that was um, my my plans for a more flexible future. You know, you can combine the banal with the uh, highbrow, with the lowbrow, with the humorous, with the broken, Uh, that huge um, spectrum of what it is to be human and individual. You can combine all those things and still be successful. There isn't this cardboard cutout woman or Mm. man that you have Mm. to be and you 
can miscarry in that. You can lose your job in that. You can lose your relationship in that. You can lose things and still succeed. Um, and I think that's exactly what I struggled with at 21, looking, staring down the barrel um, of a legal career where it felt like I needed to be someone else. And I am looking at you now. I mean, I'm, I still can't get out of my head the double spanks. The double, you went for the double gusset, Holly. <laughs> it was most, do you understand then how not short my loo breaks then were? You, Can you imagine trying to deal with that? The double gusset, you do you, Holly. I think that's on a cushion somewhere, isn't it? You do you. <laughs> We've teamed up with our friends at Three and all year we'll be working together to make business dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and who knows what will come true. With Three Means Business Plan, I love that you can get up to £500 worth of benefits from their specialist partners to help give your business a helping hand. Whether you need support with accounting or building a new website, Three have got you covered. Now over to a short story about those that dreamt big and flew. 98-year-old Iris Apfel is the world's oldest fashion icon. Before finding fame, Apfel travelled the world with her husband Carl, buying textiles for their business. Iris always believed that she was meant for the stars, forever daydreaming of what her fashion could mean to the world. And she lived by her mantra, we were put on this earth to do something. She never let go of this dream and always thought of the stars, but it wasn't until she found her fame at 83 years old, having been sprung into the limelight with a Costume Institute exhibition all about her style that we all learned of her incredible and eccentric sense of fashion. Iris is so wonderful and soulful with her advice. I try to be happy whenever I can. I don't fret about what's past and we don't know if there will be a future. So I make as much as I can out of the here and now. She's always dreaming of the good and the great and she once was quoted saying that she wished for a superpower to help others. Iris wished for peace, a cure for cancer and Alzheimer's and everyone to be well educated. All the good stuff. I mean, how wonderful is that? Don't forget to share your own business dream using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. To discover more about Three's business plans, search Three Means Business. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. It was when you became a mother, though, to lovely May and Eve, um, who I, yeah, totally adorable, that your life changed and your passion for flexible working and what we've been hinting at during this conversation really ignited. Could you tell us um, about the story of being the founder of Mother Pucker and um, where did that bloody brilliant name come from? So um, I think actually I have to give credit to my friend Gemma Knox, who um, she's the CEO of Vice. And I uh, was working at L'Oreal Group as a copywriter and I just said, look, I've got this idea. I think I could do this kind of parenting platform. I think everyone was talking about platforms back then. Um, and I was going to call it Mother Pucker, P-U-C-K-E-R. And I was like, you know, I can do lipsticks, I can do shoes, handbags, you know, like... <laughs> 
I wasn't aiming for anything particularly dramatic. And she looked at me and she just was like, I'm not interested. She's like, you need something punchier. Like, you know, don't pigeonhole yourself. And um, it kind of really came to me when I was mulling it over at a point where I was running late for nursery pickup. And a guy had got his briefcase trapped in the tube door and it had put me 12 minutes late for nursery pickup. And then I was charged a pound a minute after six and sat on one of those tiny primary coloured chairs meant um, for an infant and told off. Understandably, you know, the my daughter's key worker had to get home. And I just apologised to everyone. And I just thought it's not my fault. You know, this is the system. I left on time. I couldn't help that there were leaves on the line, you know. I was um I was surviving. I think that was it. No joy. Um and I came up with mother pucker at that point. I just went mother motherfucker I'm angrier than the lipstick. <laughs> and so that was it. Um angrier than lipstick. I'm angrier than lipstick. I, yeah. There's no handbag that can solve this. There's not a bag. There's a few things that can solve it, but I don't think a handbag's going to cut the mustard at this point. And I started uh, with writing about miscarriage because I had had a miscarriage the week before and I thought I'm going to write about what I know, what I feel and what makes me angry. And um, I'm going to let all the voices in my head saying, you're not the woman to say these words. You're not um, highbrow enough. You know, you're not informed enough. You're not this enough. You're not enough. Uh, I'm going to put those to a side and speak. And I spoke uh, and people listened and not just listened, responded. And then I quit my job uh, two weeks later after not related to this at all, but just after my flexible working request was denied um, for, you know, opening the floodgates to others seeking flexible working. And I want to stress that I left in very good terms. I still work for the L'Oreal group. You know, I didn't leave because I wasn't worth it. Um, and I think that was the frustration for both business and employee was I then went on to freelance mm. for them and they paid me more money to work on my own terms. And I was like, you're missing out here, not me. So when I started seeing it was a business issue, not just an employee issue. And I wrote about why I quit my job. And that was where Flexapeal started. Because I think like you probably have experienced when you put something out there that hacks you off, and then you get a response and you think, I can't sit here and just absorb this response. I need to respond with this in my arsenal. I don't know what I'm going to do. I am not an activist. I do not understand uh, the political system as well as many other people out there who would be um, better equipped to do this. But you know what? I'm here. I'm angry. And I don't want my daughters to hit the same brick wall that I have hit in the way that I feel like a lot of women uh, at my stage in life do. So that was really where it went to. For those who don't know about it, Tell us about it, the Flex Appeal campaign. So it is to fight for flexible working for everyone, which um, is quite ironic considering we're on uh, Skype essentially working remotely and businesses are still continuing. And, you know, I mean, over 24-hour periods, the working world uh, wasn't flexible but went remote. Uh, at the very least. And I think right now, I want to be clear that we're in a period of enforced remote working, which is very different to effective, flexible working, as you know. Um, But it just proves that tech is there to facilitate it if that's the case. So Flexapill really started in the sense that my dad was always at the school gates at 3.15 for my sister and I. He had quit the rat race in the 80s and created his own consultancy in the way that you 
did, probably for very similar reasons. Um, and he was laughed at. He was uh, had colleagues saying, you're mad, you know, you'll be broke within a year. There was nobody that trusted him in the 80s to do that. And yet he did it. And he was there to hear my sister and I squabble over who had a packet of quavers uh, at lunch break. You know, the dream. You wonder why you're fighting for it sometimes. You know, when you think, I've done all of this. And now you're just watching the poker channel. <laughs> but uh yeah, so my dad, he is at the center of all of this because I feel that men don't get considered for flexible working or they don't put themselves forward for flexible working because it's deemed emasculating in some sense. And I think this really links back to why Matt and I work together is that my voice might be powerful in explaining the female perspective, but without the male perspective, it means nothing. Four in 10 flexible working requests goes through for women. One in 10 goes through for men because the burden of childcare Mm -hmm. is still strapped to female shoulders. And what we need is men to step up in the way that they did when Piers Morgan slagged off Daniel Craig for carrying his baby on the front and then you just saw this amazing wave of men posting pictures going no peers here's me and my baby and I was like I want more of that I want to see more of that because I feel like it will help other men to push the agenda like I heard from a guy Mm. the other day and you ask him what flex appeal is it is to make sure that all voices are included in the conversation and to make sure that this guy who messaged me saying my boss uh, refused my flexible working request because um, he said, you know, can't your missus do that? The picking up his child from nursery. He said, well, she's she's a brain surgeon. So, you know, she's got clinic on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So you you pick a lane, you know, and he said, I'm a recruitment consultant. It's not that you have to have somebody who's a brain surgeon to secure flexible working, but it just shows the unconscious bias of how archaic minds at the top, I think, still operate and that and 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 you have a stat about that don't you 86 percent of businesses across the uk truly in their heart believe that they do not discriminate towards women who have children and don't believe that they say no to flexible working but in the same survey 77 percent of women had lost their jobs on maternity leave or had been refused flexible working yep There is a massive gap between the PR puff piece that goes out and what actually happens. And we are just trying to bridge the gap. We are trying to question why there's only a 2% uptake uptake on shared parental leave. You know, why is that? If we're talking about gender equality, and I think the big question to all businesses, big and small, is... um, put aside the bottom line productivity goes up when you implement flexible working a like google and you can find all the stats go to timewise go to acas you will find why it works but the big question is are you a diverse and inclusive employer that's all it comes mm-hmm. down to if you're not if you're not interested in employing everyone men women those living with disabilities those living with anxiety those with caring responsibilities then be clear about it. Be clear. Don't have a diversity and inclusion officer at the helm because it looks good. Uh, don't put out a PR puff piece on one tiny little thing you did for charity and think that that, that that makes everything okay. Because what lockdown has shown is that in a 24-hour period, all businesses could include those living with disabilities. They just did not want to. What I really want to know is also why you're not considering the benefits of closing a gender pay gap. You know, the Equality and Human Rights Commission pointed flexible working as the primary way to close the gender pay gap. So it's like, 
look, this isn't a conversation anymore. I dream of a world where I'm not being asked about flexible working, where it's just there because it has to be. It's not just a bonus ball or a nice to have or a ping pong table in reception or beer on tap. This is not that. (laughs) This is a fundamental shift in the way we work. I also want to talk about why do you think it is, you know, I talk to a lot of small businesses and myself, I've just uh, introduced what I'm calling the enrichment era at Holly & Co. So we're shutting our offices and we are now only going to be working from home. And, you know, before it used to be, well, some people can work from home because they are really responsible. You know that you can trust them, except X, Y, and, you know, and some people you just slightly know that actually it's a nice day for a walk. Funny enough, they can't be at that meeting. Um, And I know a lot of small businesses who are listening where when you're a founder and entrepreneur, you put all your money into something. You might not be taking any money yourself. You've got to hit those goals. You know, it's not like big corporate businesses. You know, you are reliant on everyone moving at the same, you know, the shifts that you need to have in your business in order for it to grow. Talk to me about that, because I'm sure you've heard that a lot, but I'm almost talking from the small business perspective. Yeah, I think it's a slightly tricky one because what you're sort of talking about is a recruitment issue, not a flexible working issue per se. Uh, and that's very interesting kind you say of that. where yeah. I draw the line is, you know, why have you employed someone you don't trust? You know, and I think that's what we're going to see more in the future is more rigorous recruitment processes. Um trial periods um, where you really can establish if you work together and being quite brutal at the end of it if it doesn't work in a way that I don't think we have been because when you feel like you can see someone there's an assumption they're doing yes. something but actually what this is going to be is it's going to be a period of transition but it's going to be good for business because when you do remove the shackles of feeling like you have to check in on someone and they do just deliver that relationship is going to be a hundred times better than a relationship where it's like owner and pet where you're sort of like I I don't, or a parent, or a parent, or, a parent. or I yeah. don't trust. Yes. I don't trust you not to sit in your undercrackers and watch Homes Under the Hammer, which is the sort of lurking fear of most businesses. I think when you say anything regarding flexible working, but um, while it will be difficult, there will be difficult conversations that need to be had. It's not going to be this utopia. It will just be a different way of working where there'll be more rigorous. Um, checking on productivity as opposed to checking on where people are sitting I just I think what you've just brought up there was fantastic because you know so for a business owner would I have taken honestly this moment to say you know what guys we're going to do an eight-week trial of you all working at home no way from this I have seen it being proven to me and actually it goes to say that actually when I recruit I recruit entrepreneurial mindsets um tell me what your ultimate goal is then i want a world where we ebb and flow between home and office with the tech there to support it the trust in place um douglas copeland summed it up for me he said the nine to five is barbaric i truly think we will look back on the nine to five like we did child slavery in the 18th century and i don't I don't I don't stand too far away from what he says there. What I do think mm. is the kickback I have had over the years is I love the nine to five. Stop trying to break the nine to five down. I'm not breaking it down. I'm giving people a choice. That's what I want. Yes. That's the difference. Choice. Uh, and I think like you have seen in the last eight weeks, I've had businesses saying we've been more productive than ever. And I said, well, yeah, yeah. because people are seeing yeah. their families, you know, like 
people enjoy having dinner with their families. It's not rocket science. It's human nature. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's 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 just been an amazing experience for us, and we're implementing um, things such as um, Slack. We're introducing Monday.com, um, amazing tools to work remotely. And for for me, it's just been being able to make people happy that I care about in our team, um, bringing us actually closer than ever. The fact that people are able, as you said, to have dinner with their family um, has made them happier. And that goes on to your TED talk because you you brilliantly talked, didn't you, about the sort of happy chicken analogy. Can you can you reshare that? Yeah. So um, coming back to what Douglas Copeland said about the nine to five being barbaric, um, Matt and I drew parallels between battery hens and free range hens um, in the simple And the simple fact is that free-range eggs are better. They're bigger. (laughs) They're better. The chickens are happier. They run free. And it comes down to what you were saying is just let people be themselves, recruit the right talent, and then trust them and empower them. So, yeah, so we, we did that talk. And it has been used by businesses across the globe to give a more human and very visual uh manifestation of what it looks like when you break it down we're all strapped to a slab of mdf under a strip light it's not that different when you look at it um and we've become this has been our normal for since the industrial revolution the ninth i was going to say i was going to say i mean do you believe that we will look back at this time do you believe that it will be put into law what are your takes on this because i'm very hopeful that you can't now unknow what we know yeah, you know that the government can't unknow what they know. Uh, businesses, as we know, so many companies have said, you know, people will be working from home for the foreseeable future. What, what's your take on this? I mean, this has been a catalyst for discussion. The um, point, and it's not a gloating point, is that it was always possible. Of course, it was possible. Um, but mm. what was actually happening there was, if a company didn't zoom in, they would have to shut down. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't that they were doing it out of the kindness of their hearts or because they thought it was the right thing. It came down to hard, cold cash. And ultimately, mm-hmm. we're seeing productivity going up because everybody knew that was the case. You're now seeing this layer, this archaic layer that was saying no to flexible working because that's just not how they did it. Seeing the opportunities, seeing that this huge wave of people working differently, like I said, ebbing and flowing between office and work is a way of working and is good for the bottom line. Um, whether it makes it into law or not at this stage, we don't know. It's on the table in Whitehall. Um, but we have formed a coalition with the Fawcett Society, Pregnant Then Screwed, the Fatherhood Institute, TUC, to fight for flexible working for everyone from day one, because at the moment you've got to wait 26 weeks before you ask permission to have a little bit of flexibility and then the business reasons are set up to fail. But what we're fighting for is that it becomes law that from day one at Holly & Co, at Marks & Spencer's, at John Lewis, at the co-op, that everybody can have flexible working, whether that's remote working, whether Mm. that's core hours, however they want to work. And you work Mm. with a team. Mm. And this isn't about an employee demanding everything, you know, saying, I want this, I want that. It's like um, the best example I can give is, and it is a case of life and death, is in the NHS. So Birmingham Women's Hospital, their maternity ward, the matron said to her 40-strong team of sisters, You sort it out amongst yourselves. And they trialed it for three months. Uh, 
the thing that she said shifted for her as a manager was instead of her saying, oh God, I've got to sort out who's going to cover Jane's shift on Thursday. I would have Jane messaging me saying, by the way, Tina's covering my shift on Thursday. And she said, it's that sense of ownership that a manager feels they have to have over humans. Like we don't Mm -hmm. trust you. So Mm -hmm. we must do everything. Mm -hmm. And then you have teams working together going, oh, I've got a nativity play next week. Do you mind covering that? And then I'll cover your birthday the week of it. Sure. And you suddenly have what people talk about and try and do these ridiculous team building exercises, which never work. Stop trying to do the one day a year and do it every day, 365 days of the year. Get your team to work together and stop trying to own them. And if Birmingham Women's Hospital, in the context of a pandemic, can do this, then you absolutely can do it. Stop. Absolutely. Stop, as my mum would say, snap the tea off and you can. She'd, when I'd say, I can't, I can't do it, mum, I won't do it. She's like, just snap the tea off the end and you can. <laughs> oh, it's just amazing advice and I would echo that for me as a businesswoman and someone that leads a team I would say for the first time this period of time and now the changes that I've created with this enrichment era you know I have felt that that was not my responsibility that actually we were going to come together almost as equals to tackle an issue and it has been liberating for me and I would just say that if you look back now to the beginning of this podcast when you were talking about knowing that you wanted to be a mum and actually today with your two children the amazingness that you have become in terms of this campaign, it it is quite unbelievable. I always love looking at the golden thread. And if you just take it all the way back, you can always, isn't it, what um, Steve Jobs said, you know, you connect the dots. I wanted to be a mother and work, but I don't want to say, oh, I'm just a lawyer. I want to say I'm a mother. So, Yes, I am proud. uh, And I think this is what my 21 year old self, I think, wanted to look forward to was I'm proud that I'm a mother uh, who can work. Yeah, it's just fantastic. And at the end of these interviews, I use the analogy that your journey in life is often very much like an epic roller coaster. What would you say has been one of your biggest lows whilst on this journey? The biggest low was. Perhaps when I was on my phone uh, and I think I was so busy making a point uh, that I missed the point, uh, which was to be there for my children. I had my daughter looking up at me with Bambi eyes and she just said, sometimes I don't think you like me very much when you're on your phone. It would be that point where I couldn't stop crying because I felt the two humans I was doing this for at that point couldn't see it but also I'd become consumed by making a point and at that point I did gosh I'm sure many of us can relate to that and conversely a greatest high I think it would be standing up at the Welsh Assembly giving evidence on the link between maternity discrimination and flexible working and I was in this um leopard print jumpsuit and I hadn't really thought about my attire at all. I just got dressed in the morning and suddenly was in a room full of black suits and sort of stood up with um, a polka dot headscarf on and uh, leopard print onesie. And 
delivered evidence from 2,500 or so people who had uh, answered a survey that we'd done about the discrimination they'd faced. And for years, I'd had I'd felt I wasn't the right voice for this, that maybe I was a bit brash sometimes or um, that, you know, what does a horticulture week reporter know? You know, I had doubted myself mm. consistently. It was the door open and that was yeah. simply having confidence in um, a <laughs> horticulture week reporter's voice. God, that makes me just so proud of you. Yeah, that's incredible. And tell me, um, someone that's inspired you, someone that you think, you could personally recommend that I interview for this podcast? There were two people, really. Um, the first one is, uh, well, I don't know, you maybe have interviewed her, Steph Douglas from Don't Buy Her Flowers. She's absolutely amazing, isn't she? Yeah, she um, she has been just a consistent friend. And I think you need those women who are there to build you up when you've kind of fallen. Um, and she's done that in a very just natural way uh, for me. And the other person is my literary agent Abigail Bergstrom who um, has given me confidence in my voice and is publishing some of the most incredible women right now she is in very in many ways a facilitator but she is her own voice too um, so yes Abigail Bergstrom uh, is an incredible woman and I, I suggest you all follow her Oh, thank you so much for those recommendations we've come to that point in the podcast where I now hand over to you to read a letter to your younger self. But before I hand over to you, I just wanted to thank you. And I thank you so much on behalf of actually all women listening to this podcast, because not only were you vulnerable in sharing your story of such lows that you've had to tackle, but throughout all of that, you've had our back. Um, and thank God for you and your leopard print um, outfits. Well, thank God for you and your glittery trainers. I mean, are we like a really knackered Spice Girls band, like cover band? Is that basically what we are in business? We try. To, we think, we think we're, we're we're edgy, but really we're just tired. Oh my God! Just don't even say that now. I think about covering it. ourselves oh. in glitter and leopard print and hoping for the best. Yeah, um, and just hoping for the best. Yeah, but, no. but thank you so so much, Anna, for your time today. It's been truly inspiring. I have loved it, and thanks for I think amplifying voices. I've been listening to this podcast for a while now, and I think, um, like I said, the facilitator, the amplifi amplifying of voices is more important sometimes than the voice. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hand over to you, um, to your letter to your younger self. Okay, here we go. Um, this is to myself when I was seven. Uh, so around uh, when my daughter's age now. Um, Hi, Anna, seven-year-old Anna. I see you. You don't feel that many do right now, but I do. I see that you are awkward, but clever, worthy of a prize for excellence, even though you always fall short of someone else's mark. You'll be told you can't do many things. Uh, it will be gently suggested that you don't take A-level English because your brain doesn't analyse literature like others. It doesn't work like others. It sees the colour and not the substance, they will say. You will be told you aren't substantial enough, but you are. You will fail many times, but you are substantial. And you will write... Oh, my love, you're right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they were wrong. Right this moment, you're in the school playground, smelling wet tarmac, holding 
your little <laughs> crocodile rainbow gloves to your hot tears to save anyone seeing you. But I see you and others will hang in there, champ, because it's painfully beautiful on the other side. Gosh. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so full of admiration for your um, way with words and your ability to open your heart. And um, I really, really thank you for that. And um, I have to say, though, that I did um, say to my daughters, you might have seen, uh, I read it out to them and my eldest was um, very keen for me to do so. And I started reading it and I got to the point um, around the crocodile rainbow gloves and my youngest just went, boring. Just believe in, <laughs> believe in your voice, even when others don't. I was like, Fine. I will be silenced by a two-year-old. Back to the poker channel. Not in. Oh my god! Well, you've managed to make my tears now—tears of laughter. Like you have this entire conversation. You are a joy. You, 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 you literally are a joy. Thank you, Anna, from bottom of my heart. You've been brilliant. Thank you for having me. Take bye. Thank you. Bye. Before you go, don't forget, if you want to be in a chance to win a 19-minute mentoring session with me, all you need to do is sign up to NatWest Business Builder, which is packed full of videos and advice, all with the aim to help you build your business and arm you with all the tools you need. To find out more, head over to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. Your support really means the world to me and it really does help spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come